It certainly is a big bag. It's a very big bag. Big squishy bag. It's a very big squishy bag. Where's the shrimp? Some shrimp places send all sack and no shrimp. Where is the shrimp? At Joe's Shrimp Shack, we sell cholo what we modestly call average sized. And you can save 15% on your order by going to joeshrimpshack.com and using promo code AquariumGuys at checkout. Where's the damn shrimp? At Joe's Shrimp Shack, you get more shrimp and less sack. Hey, where's the shrimp? And the cholo one is banned! Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Today we have a special guest, Ken, I'm going to try this last name, Wingerter. I think it's, he said it was German. Um, hopefully I pronounced it correctly. He is a blogger, writer for a lot of different columns and, uh, Owner of his own online store, hydrospace.store. Ken, how are you doing tonight? Excellent. Good to be here. So Ken happens to be uh, an expert on cold water marine tanks, which I don't do a lot of salt water. I've done some, but not enough to be like, you know, I should try the goldfish variety of the expensive tank market. I think you should just go to Red Lobster and pick one out. Right. That's that's, that, that's about the... as close as I'm going to get to doing cold water. So well, clearly we need a lot of instruction, and Ken, we're happy to have you on and uh, teach us a, a thing or three. So I am your host, Rob Zolson. Hey, I'm Jim Colby, and somewhere out there is Adam Elnishar. Where Adam muted himself. He muted himself? He doesn't know how to use his yeah, computer. I, I am. My kids are fighting in the background. You should just punch him in the throat. Well, I'm tempted. He, he stole their candy. See, that's it's all da- that's dad, Halloween. That's dad tax. That's not stealing. That's dad tax. It's not stealing. It's taxation. The government does it all the time. Where's the representation? Hmm? Hmm? I'm their father. That's all the representation they need. That's right. Sounds like communism. Uh-huh. Anywho, before we dive into the uh, topic that I frankly don't know a ton about, I've done uh, some some homework to try to prep for the podcast. Oh, that'd be nice to not hear anything from you all day. I, you better speak <laughs> up, Jimmy. That's all I'm saying. I know nothing. You know that. You've been to Red Lobster, so... Uh, I've been to Red Lobster, so I guess I'm an expert. I'm glad we got you on, Ken. But before we uh, dive into the topic, we have a couple uh, reviews, questions, and uh, we even have a voicemail to go over. A voicemail? Right. So let's start with the good things, right? Let's go with the reviews. So <laughs> five-star, awesome podcast, got back in the hobby, kept African cyclists for 20 years, now full-blown into planted tanks. The podcast is informative and entertaining. Keep Adam... As a regular on the show, this is the only podcast I've listened to to the entire uh, entire show. Uh, awesome podcast, guys. So that was actually submitted by Adam. We've done uh, some details. <laughs> that was from one of Adam's kids. <laughs> keep keep Adam on the show. Right. Well, little does he know that that, that uh, he's going to take over this this podcast, so we can have a couple weeks off. Right. He's just going to solo it while we go to. I don't know. We Dairy can't even Queen. go to the Dell. Everything's anymore. closed around here. We can go to the Dairy Queen. That's about it. Everything's closed. So clearly, Adam's fan list grows. That was two people. Right. That's <laughs> more than I expected. You're up to two people, though? Your mom and your wife. That's fantastic. <laughs> Whoever this was yeah. and the person that thinks he's hot. Oh, that's we know who that is. We know who that is. So next uh, one is Love It. Absolutely addicted to the podcast. Uh Love listening to these while at work. It's weird. I actually feel like we're all friends and I've listened to guys so much. And yes, we are friends. 
This was submitted from Great Britain. So uh, really, from over the pond. Oh, over the pond. The pond. I like that. And well, th- thanks for listening over there in, in Great Britain. And call me. I want to know what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. Last ones. Love the podcast. Entertaining uh, and interesting. Looking forward to listening to the rest of the episodes. Keep up the great work, guys, in Australia. So I think that uh, we've made the c- circulation on the planet. We can get to questions. Wow. Unless you want oh, voicemail. Is it bad, good, or ugly? All right. So we got this voicemail. It's rather low. So, you know, turn up your speaker for this. But uh, here, it's rather low. It's rather low. Like our ratings. Yeah. Like, like our ratings. Um, but, uh, yeah, here it is. So I don't know if you caught that, but uh, Jimmy likes to leave voicemails for me, and that was just him going, <laughs> you know, singing and then calling me a dumbass. Yeah. Well, we, uh, you know, we did we did the podcast back on Brackish Fish, and we're talking about scat. So I did a little scatting for everybody, and uh, even my son said that was pretty funny, and he's usually a harsh critic. Jim was probably also sober when he called you a dumbass. Might have. Might have. You don't know. You know, the truth comes out when you've been drinking. So That was a note that we clearly need more voicemails. If Jimmy's leaving the voicemail for us, you need to do it. So go to AquariumGuysPodcast.com. At the bottom of the website, we have a telephone number. You can text it, or you can leave us a voicemail. We'd much rather have a voicemail because, you know, it is a podcast, and your voice matters to us. Or can't you take, like, nude photos and send them? I mean, you could. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't want that. Yeah, but the first person will do it will, will be will be your mom. So I got another text message this week. Did you? From a listener it says, "Hey guys, love the show. Caught up on every episode. Hoping you can help me with a very noob problem. Started a thirty-five gallon plant to take before lockdown of the feeder guppies, endlers. Endlers. To clarify, <laughs> clarify that. And fancy guppies. Are they feeling? Are they feeling suicidal? Because Wait, there's such a disappointment. Both of them together. Right. That was the first thing I caught. Is he's mixing Why? them now? Uh, uh, in a month, four. I can already tell I'm going to have a real issue soon. I've added some blue eye rainbow fish trying to compete, but they aren't a match for uh, insatiable guppies. So I'm assuming he's meeting for food. Like the guppies are like ravaging the food before the blue eyes get it. Um, no one wants these endlers, and I can't do anything with the tank right now. How do I keep my tank sustainable? Thanks for the advice. So I had to ask. You seem to elude what's actually happening. I just assumed it was the food. So getting into more uh, information, he said the blue eyes are skittish around the guppies, and are, um, guppies are water hogs. Uh, endlers don't stop breeding. It's just going to be uh, unsustainable soon. So it comes down to overcrowded. That's what I found out. I thought it was food it's being overcrowded, and. I uh, told them that they'll eat their own young. I mean, you, you won't have to worry too much. There's uh, plenty of predators in that tank. If they have babies, don't keep trying to scoop them. Um, you can just let them get eaten. Uh, de- that depends on you. Otherwise, have an outlet for these uh, endlers to go to. Uh, shops will just take them in as feeder guppies. So have, uh, find your outlet or see if you can even uh, sell them to uh, certain friends. I know Facebook kind of bans live pet sales. But there are different, uh, definitely plenty of places where you can have an outlet of selling it that isn't on Facebook. So, you know, find that outlet, contact your store. If not, let them eat their own young. That is kind of the uh, nature of the tank. But, uh, yeah, if it's uh, if it's too crowded in a 36-gallon, maybe set up a bigger tank because that's always everyone's solution. Right, Jimmy? I would buy two more tanks and maybe buy some cichlids, and then you'd have an endless supply of food for them with the endler guppies. Or You're, you're evil. Or we could just give Adam's phone number live over the air 
And then uh, people could just send their Endler Guppies to Adam. Eight six seven five three zero nine. No, I don't need crossbred guppy garbage ones. Why don't you just feed them to the dojos? No, my dojos eat a steady diet of uh, candy stolen from Adam's children. <laughs> All right, well, that's what we got for questions, guys. If you want to participate in questions, you can join us live on Discord, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. We have plenty of people in the chat. And just to read the question, hey, Robs and Jim, moving two 45-gallon tanks and one 20-gallon tank on my fish from New York to Tennessee next week. Weekend. Say a prayer for my fish. Uh, you guys look good in there. Love the new video feed. He must have a really great video. They're looking at me, not you. Yeah, because yeah. you take up the entire screen. That's no, no, why. no. He's losing weight. He's taking less. He's about a, about two thirds of the screen now. Wait, was that was that a compliment? Because I only I only like fat shaming. Well, I I still fat shamed you, but I was giving you a compliment on losing at least five pounds. Well, well <laughs> at least five pounds. How much? How much weight have you lost? So I think I started at like three seventy five, and now I'm like three forty. Wow! So good job. Good job. I, Congratulations. I lost a small child. <laughs> it's like you lost an tell everybody that, that that your leg got cut off and that's got, how you lost the weight it got chopped right off that's right well we have uh again gone over questions guys you got more questions certainly let us know in the live chat aquariumguyspodcast.com bottom of the website you'll find the link to our discord and you can join these we try to do it monday at about 7 uh, p.m central time so you come join us but let's get into our deep dive topic because uh i'm still confused why jimmy just had lobster as the uh, research topic so I know nothing about the subjects. Ken, thanks again for coming on the podcast. You you got to help us, man. So, what? Uh, number one, we always ask, what got you into the hobby? Oh, that goes back a long ways. I grew up in North Dakota, right? I grew up uh, uh, west of Wapton, North Dakota, by Milner, North Dakota. Is where I grew up. But I over Wapton, over by Wapton, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I grew up on Standing Rock. Okay, I know exactly <laughs> where you were. From. A Selfridge area. A little farm that uh, dad grew up on, and my grandpa grew up on, and my great grandpa founded. Anyway, uh, not a place, you know, it's really active in the aquarium industry, especially at that time. Or active uh, in human life. Right. Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was like a big deal to get to go up to Kmart, right? Yes, it was. And uh, so. Well, but in the meanwhile, I'd gotten a book from my grammar or something like that that had like all this marine life in it. And it blew my mind. It, growing up on the prairie, it seemed so exotic and all that. So I wanted a fishbowl. And I, one of my first memories actually is coming back from Kmart, uh, clutching a bag with like goldfish in it, you know, in the back. Back then, you could just <laughs> playing with it in the back of the station wagon or whatever on the highway. I got flushed accidentally along with uh, my walrus man action figure. My mom flushed it. But looking back, she maybe died and she was protecting me from the pain of that loss. But it was, I was told it was an accident. It could have been. Um, I'm sure walrus man was an accident, but uh, walrus man got replaced. The fish did not. Um, it was until I was like 12. I finally got my aquarium, uh, my first aquarium my, for my birthday. 10 gallon and that was inspired by a friend of mine who had like a little five gallon tank whatever with like guppies and his dad was breeding them I mean, with like the old steel frame you know those really old school tanks the meta frames it just the idea was breeding fish and i thought that was so neat so i got this aquarium for my birthday and 
yeah, like I said, you know, growing up in North Dakota, nothing to do. It was something, especially over the winters, to dink around with. So kind of became a thing when I was young all the way through high school. And now it's a, you know, ransom passion project. Yeah, keep me impoverished. So, Ken, what is your background? Just, uh, you know, because you have quite the long list. You're a blogger. You write for uh, very popular websites. Um, you write for um, other columnists. You have your own store. You know, list uh, some of your accomplishments for us and uh, what, what you do in the aquarium industry. I've done a lot, actually. Um, it's kind of mostly uh, working in LFS is, and other things kind of happened on the side, working in labs. I've done zebrafish. Actually worked uh, five years at the Zebrafish International Resource Center in Eugene, Oregon, where I got my biology degree. Um, that was the original zebrafish facility. As you probably know, they're, you know, it's like a model organism now. They're all over the world, these labs. But that was a cool place to do it because it was really experimental. Pond stuff, uh, in food fish, hatcheries, stuff like that. I've always kind of been into aquariums, and that, that's what got me into school. So I moved out west, went to the University of Oregon, got a degree in biology, moved on from there to the aquarium science program out on the coast in Newport near the uh, Oregon Coast Aquarium. It's nearby the Hatfield Marine Science Center place. But anyway, um, did a lot of stuff out there and then kind of went more full force into the industry working in hatcheries, mental fish hatcheries. So where are some of the, the websites and blogs that you've uh, written content for? Advanced Aquarist actually was when I started uh, doing the cold water stuff. In fact, I did like a three-part for them, and they liked it, asked for more stuff, and then it just kind of went from there, and I just kept writing. But uh, I've written a few dozen articles for them. So they were like my main thing for a long time. Uh, they folded more recently, and they're incorporated into reefs.com. Uh, I've written for reefs. Uh, I've written for Coral Magazine, Tropical Fish Hobbyist, pretty much everything, really. Done a lot of copy for uh, blogs that companies run, you know, for their commercial websites and stuff like that. That's more of the stuff I, I don't like, the commercial stuff. Perfect. So how we met, just to give a little background, is you actually added me on Facebook, and I just saw that, you know, our friends match. There are so many friends in the industry that you were friends with, so I... I literally uh, started searching you, uh, the background of you, because when I get a friend request, I always try to do that as, you know, research the people that are in, in the industry. And I found that you wrote a wonderful book called The Coldwater Marine Aquarium, Biography, Ecology, and Husbandry. And that was uh, back in 2016. And that's what led me to request uh, having you on the show. So what was the you know inspiration behind, you know, I think we need a book for this? So, you know, I was already kind of into aquariums when I was a kid. And again, growing up in the middle of North Dakota, I, I didn't see the ocean until I was a teenager. I mean, even a glance. So by the time I got out of high school, I was itching to go do something where I could be on the ocean. So anyway, I uh, started working up in Siberia and Alaska on uh, crab fishing, crab fishing vessels. Jimmy called and it. So were you on the deadliest catch? <laughs> Uh, no, this this uh, definitely precedes that show. This was a long time ago. This was, I, this was when I was like 19, 20. I turned 20 and 21 on that boat. But anyway, yeah, it was, you know, it's up in the Arctic. I saw a lot of weird stuff that I had never seen in the industry. Um, weird anemones, weird starfishes, things like that that would pop out on the deck and get made fun of all the time for poking at it in the moments when we had to do stuff like that. 
But um, that always kind of burned in the back of my mind. Some of that stuff was really, really, really cool. And I always wondered if you could keep it in an aquarium. But uh, then when I moved out west to Oregon, uh, I kind of started seeing some of that stuff again. Um, a lot of those same species even run all the way up and down the West Coast from Northern California to Alaska. And I got an idea to maybe try to sell some of that stuff. So I got a license to harvest it, started a company called Foreshores. And for a couple of years, I was selling to the aquarium hobby and to labs, mostly uh, cold water invertebrates. Is there a huge demand for that? Is there a lot of uh, different places looking for for those type of animals? No, <laughs> not at all. It's definitely like a niche thing. You kind of got to really want to really be interested in it. Um, you know, it's just not something you're going to go down to uh, Petco and, you know, fill a tank full of stuff with. It's kind of for the obvious that uh, enjoy hunting down things or doing their own research, DIYing a lot of equipment even. Really, you know, it was really small back then. Uh, you know, I lasted a couple of years, went on to do other things, but then a couple friends of mine called me one time and asked if, uh, what they thought of the idea of starting, a, a like a retailer, like almost like a boutique sort of thing. It was like 2012, I think. So not that long online. ago. Well, relative to the industry. I mean, the, the, uh, online, online live animal sales thing really kind of picked up around then I would think, especially specialty things. But uh, so they were kind of unsure about it, asked me what I thought. And I said, hell no, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't even try it, you know, again. And uh, they went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, they became uh, cold water marine aquatics and they had a really good work. They did fold uh, at one point and have talked about starting up again. But the one thing they they had going on uh, around the time that they were running the business was a uh, Facebook page. And even though the business is gone, the page uh, keeps growing, and getting a little, you know, more active over time. So that's kind of what came out of that. Now it's people from all over the world actually participate in that. It's a kind of a hardcore niche, actually, that people get really, really into it. So normally when you do, like, I always try to compare the fresh to salt. When you do fresh, people assume that it's easier. And... It depends on the species. If you're not doing live corals, I would consider, at least in my limited experience, that it, it's not necessarily anything more difficult. It's just uh, it has its own caveats, and it always is a little more expensive. To do a water change freely, just to walk over your tap and do a water change on uh, fresh water, there's no cost besides the water that you might pay for your, in your city. Versus salt water, you have to actually do the salt and chemicals. Uh, on top of it. So there's a more cost to it, but I never really associated with a lot more complication until you got to reef. So in cold water scenarios, is there, is it more difficult than warm water, salt water tanks? You get into like all the Gorgonians and things like that. You'll have the same issues you'd have with any NPS kind of system compounded with challenge keeping the water cold. On the other hand, like the fish are, you know, pretty damn tough. Uh, most of that stuff is it's adapted to a less hospitable environment. For the most part, the animals I would say are easier to keep. The one thing you don't have to mess with is lighting. That seems to be a, it's not necessarily a difficult thing, but with the tropical side, people go on the cheap a lot. And I think they fail because they, uh, always underestimate what they're going to need as far as lighting. So I think a lot of, a lot of the cold water people, <laughs> I won't, I want to say a lot. 
Uh, some have gotten into it because they were running on the cheap side to escape the expenditure on lighting. And they also thought that they could just go out and harvest the stuff and, you know, free livestock, right? And then they're faced with the cost of um, purchasing and operating a, a big chiller. So just it depends on what you want, you know, in the end, you should just get what you want or else it's going to seem like a waste of money, right? So what are some of the caveats of, say, starting up a tank, oh, uh, just comparing warm to cold water and marine? So is this... I always look up de details and they say that the cycle takes a lot longer and is more difficult. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, at least that it takes longer. One thing, uh, one thing you can do is start it out warmer. Um, presumably you're going to be cycling it before you start adding a bunch of livestock, right? So you have the freedom of cycling at any temp at, at any temperature that you want. So the recommendation is cycle it at, you know, 82, 83 degrees, something like that. And then, uh, bring it down after your, I was satisfied that the cycle is complete. So what is the temperature of the cold water tanks that you keep? What do you bring them down to? Sure. Uh, depends on the uh, environment that you're trying to replicate, but the kind of point that everyone goes towards is around like 55 degrees. Fahrenheit. Whoa. So it's not like you do in uh, freshwater cold water where you just kind of let it sit for room temperature where it goes, say your house is 72, it goes like what? 67 60 yeah. 66 you're you're literally having to force it to go much colder than just room temperature absolutely yeah and these animals will die Un unlike freshwater temperate animals which are adapted they live in small bodies of water that are subject to really wide temperature fluctuations For example they can handle the lower oxygen content that you'll find in warmer water uh, cold water animals, that's, you know, the ocean is a pretty stable place. So if, if they're adapted to 55 degrees, they're expecting 55 degrees. Um, I guess that's why global that's, warming that's, is such a crisis for the marine life is because they really can't take the change. I'm just not used to that with fresh. So um, ecologists are finding that cold water fauna is moving, <laughs> steadily moving northwards and subtropical stuff is moving northwards to fill its place. So all these items that you that you put in cold water tanks are these all deep water species oh um so but that's a good question they're actually two different i would say two different kinds of cold water tanks one is a deep water tank or even in the tropics if you go deep enough below the thermocline which is you know the, the seawater is layered right um because different densities of different water temperatures so the cold water sinks and it's deeper down um, yeah, you, so you'll you have those fish that live in the really really deep water that can get that cold. You know, some of the, most of those, if you're keeping like the tropical deep water stuff, you might shoot for more like sixty degrees, something like that, depending on the biotope. But uh, if you're going with temperate stuff, um, stuff that's you know no, extremely uh, you know northern or southern latitude, then yeah, it could be it could be shallow water stuff, tide pool even staying at pretty cold temperature so you have your intertidal stuff that's uh a little more adaptable to temperature fluctuations and then you have your subtitle stuff they're never really exposed to that and they're a lot harder to keep so in the temperate area that's another little division i guess um find more uh more challenges with the subtitle stuff now i know over here uh down in minneapolis there, there's the minnesota state zoo and for years, they had beluga whales always on display. 
And they eventually were having so many health issues with these animals because they couldn't keep the water cold enough, which is really strange. You can't keep the water cold enough in, in northern Minnesota. And um, they felt the salinity of the water uh, wasn't good enough either and stuff. And so they ended up eventually um, giving those animals to an, another zoo. Are those, uh, like a beluga whale and stuff, are those a real cold water species? Uh, so are beluga whales cold water species? Yeah, <laughs> ask the, uh, ask yeah, the marine guy that keeps an aquarium. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to see if I can get one of these for my, for my tank, because I think you're cool as hell. <laughs> no, you've seen the documentary Blackfish, Jimmy. Stop no, I, it. Yeah, I watched half of it and turned it off. So I, I'm not, you know, I know they're, they're ten, I think they're Arctic, actually. See? Or they venture up that way, so. Um, so it was, it was a good I mean, yeah, that's actually an interesting segue. So the thing with those whale, a lot of these whales, um, they live in places where there's a lot of plankton, whether because they feed on it directly or because, you know, they're huge fisheries that depend on that plankton. Um, that's one big difference between like the tropics. You're used to seeing like really clear water, um, because it's oligotrophic, it's nutrient poor. Uh, whereas as you, uh, run up a latitude, um, closer to the you know, Northern or Southern pole, the water tends to um, have more nutrients in it. That has a lot to do with ocean currents and so forth. But anyway, more nutrient rich. So the water up there is really green, just a lot more plankton. So you'll see animals are different. The, the, the sessile invertebrates in a cold water system are almost all filter feeders. Have very few zooxanthellate animals. There are a couple notable sea anemones that a lot of people keep that uh, um, are photosynthetic, but the most part, it's it's all feeding. It's heavy, heavy, heavy feeding. So the struggle is to maintain water quality, usually with these types of systems. You said water quality is what difference is there? Because even like in freshwater, I always just assume that uh, cold water are easier to deal with. Like maybe it's the species and why we we get that with freshwater species. Um, because our goldfish, for instance, are so hardy. White clouds are so hardy. Our normal traditional gold, uh, cold water species can really take a, an abuse. But is it that much um, different to maintain water quality in a cold water tank? Like, what's the, some of the caveats that uh, that make it that way? I suppose if you have a lot of invertebrates and you feed heavy, because um, that's it's kind of wasteful feeding. You know, you're just broadcast feeding like plankton and uh, things like that in there. That you know, a lot of it will go to waste. So eventually, yeah, it, that'll build up. And then if, you know, if your uh, nitrifying filter isn't running at the speed that you might be expecting to, if you have previous experience with a marine tank, you know, then you'll start to see ammonia nitrite creep up on you really fast. Uh, these systems, I would probably recommend um, some kind of supplemental nitrification, either, you know, like a giant <laughs> oversized biofilter, and then also maybe um, a uh, refugium, like a planted refugium. And that's just because the the process is slower, you're saying? Of nitrification, yeah. So, you know, you can feed it any speed you want, but, you know, and the fish will pretty much produce the ammonia as it accumulates in their bodies. They'll they'll just release it into the, but, you know, the biofilter isn't running at the same speed would if it were at, say, you know, 79 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can have uh, ammonia creep up on you really fast long after you think the tank is cycled. So let's assume that we're reading some filter that has, uh, you know, bio balls in it or some sort of media to try to create that bio cycle. What, what do we, in a cold water marine tank, are you looking for more filtration or just simply more um, bio media? 
Um, probably more biomedia, more water changes, other filtration and treatment components to help the process along. I know a lot of people in cold, some anyway, have successfully used uh, ozone. Don't see that a lot in the you know tropical side, but seaweeds are a lot bigger in uh, temperate tanks because there are so many more cool seaweeds that you can have in a cold water tank. Some are more like you know the equivalent of a freshwater planted tank, and uh, those algaes release a lot of ozone into the water for one thing, so it it clears that up. It also helps break down all the organics that accumulate. You know, if you have uh, animals that are you know, again, gorgonians, they're, uh, those are feeding sea cucumbers, barnacles are a lot bigger, cold water stuff. All these things have to eat and you just, you know, some of these people just dump it in, you know, the bucket full. So you got to get it out of there one way or the other. For, so, for the newbie listeners, I apologize. For the newbie listeners, you wouldn't explain what the uh, ozone that you're speaking of would be, correct? Uh, so uh, an oz- ozonizer um, just generates ozone. It, uh, oxidizes organic compounds, uh, breaks them down into simpler compounds that are more easily uh, consumed by bacteria, removed by your skimmer, um, so forth. Uh, skimmers are a big thing for cold water tanks really because of the you know high organics load, but also they help keep the water oxygenated, which is really important, especially if you're not keeping the temperature down as far as you should be. It can be a struggle in the summer for some people if they don't have AC. Now, going back to the filtration uh, conversation, so generally we have a lot of beginner beginner aquarists don't get a feel for how much filtration they need, especially now with a cold water tank, they really rely on the box instructions. So if a box is rated for uh, an aquarium for 55 Hmm. gallons, what do you rate a marine tank for, for, say like a biological filter? Would you want to say three times the labeled box rate, or what's your rule of thumb on how much uh, biological filtration you're you're going to be looking at for that same fifty-five gallon tank? Um, to be honest, I never really thought about that. Um, or thought of it in that way. Uh, but I would just recommend oversizing, maybe doubling. But the thing is, it's I wouldn't rely on one form of filtration. So if you know if a biofilter, for example, said it was rated for uh, a 55-gallon tank. Um, you know, I might I might double that, but I'd also make sure I had a really good skimmer. Um, I'd use car I'd use activated carbon and change it religiously. I'd plan on uh, doing a lot of water changes. It all depends on what you're keeping to. Again, like some of these people just want to have like Catalina gobies or something like that. They're not heavy in like the filter feeding animals, in which case it's really the same or even easier than uh, maintaining a tropical equivalent. Well, I guess the, the better way of measuring it then instead of going like a box rate is a sump because generally you have the same mechanical uh, structure in a sump no matter how big the sump is. The excess size just goes for how much biological media you have. So if you're having a, a cold water marine tank with the skimmer and all the details, you probably want an oversized sump, correct? Totally, yeah. Uh, you just have to remember that's that's more water to have to chill. It's more stuff to have to insulate. Yeah, uh, definitely, that helps. Uh, one thing about you know a larger system and oversizing your sump in particular is that it helps stabilize water temperature. So you have a bigger volume of water. Obviously, that's going to be more stable. But you can also it makes it a little bit easier to put a fan on. A lot of people, you know, in addition to the chiller, they'll 
throw a fan on and it's easier to put that on the sump than it is on their main tank sometimes. Uh, a fan. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, 55 degrees. What benefits a fan going to do off that being that cold? To my it's going to cool your house down, Rob. Yeah, it's going to chill your chill your floor. I know ab- absolutely it's supplemental, but uh, that's when you're you know midsummer and you're running into problems, knocking a the temperature down. Evaporative cooling works pretty well actually. If you can get it down a temperature or two, it may save you know may save your tank. Even you know, the difference. Even if you're sitting like 60 degrees and you want to go to 55, a fan will help get you there. Will, no. But yeah, like usually a couple degrees. They have some. So you can a Teco, I think, is the name of the brand. Um, I haven't seen them in a while, but they made a really uh, kind of badass fan. Actually, controlled everything. Um, it was made for cooling tanks. I don't remember the ratings. Same thing. I've done. I've done the same with my tropical tanks when they got really hot. Evaporative cooling works uh, pretty good in a pinch, but again, yeah, I wouldn't. You have to have a really good uh, chiller. I would add it should be there are def, there are chiller companies out there that make them um, make units just for cold water tanks, and I would certainly uh, recommend that to one that's uh, made for just kind of cooling. If you know a few degrees of drop down on a tropical tank, because the uh, ratings are different. So you said insulation. What do you mm-hmm. need to do for insulating a tank? Do you start getting, you know, collecting foam coolers or go to your hardware store and get some, like, foam sheets of insulation? What do you insulate on one of these tanks? Okay. Well, I've seen a lot of different things. I've tried a few of them. Big one is to avoid glass. I think glass sucks. It's uh, it's just a a terrible insulator. Um, You you do have the double-pane glass, if you've heard of that. I think they fill it uh, inner space with argon or something like that. Definitely don't hold me to that, but uh, Jimmy shaking his like head. <laughs> yeah, they they those might work pretty well. Um, in fact, you you know it's like those you guys mentioned the lobster tanks or whatever. A lot, I think a lot of those old Marine Land tanks had that double layered glass. But by the time you figure like how expensive that is, might as well just opt on the acrylic, a nice thick acrylic because it's a much better insulator and then you don't you can't break it and i assume you're not gonna get the sweat either you know like the condensation on the glass well that's why they they use a double pane you know a lot of people are familiar with red lobster and the different places where you go in there and they their whole thing is they want you to see the lobsters they don't want that tank sweating and they do use that double pane glass and um so that's what you almost need or else you're gonna have sweat continuously coming off there but uh, there again like you just said, with, with the acrylic, you know, if you get half-inch acrylic, that's that's going to be a pretty good insulator. Oh, this guy just took the show. Is there? <laughs> yeah, it's it's called it's called sweating, and it's a problem when the uh, temperature and humidity outside of the tank are too much higher temperature than that's inside the tank. Then you'll start getting little beads of water and fog. And uh, there are actually little indicators you can use, uh, little algorithms you can find online to calculate how thick of acrylic you'd need based on how much pull down and uh, what the ambient temperature is going to be. Uh, people will use uh, wood, especially for larger tanks. Wood is a really good insulator. They'll build tanks <laughs> most of, mostly out of wood, and then they'll you know they'll glaze it in the front, you know, usually with glass. Then the very front double pane glass. I've seen all kinds of things, weird, like foamish sort of tanks I worked with at the Marine Center. 
are insulated really well. So what about the materials? What about the equipment? Like you have filters, you have all the other stuff that's maybe. I'm assuming you don't use hang on the back filters, or if you do, you have to buy specialty ones to have some sort of uh, insulation on them. Correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. That open top. I don't know. It's yeah. That wouldn't be. There are a lot of reasons you wouldn't use a hang on the back, but one is just you know most temperate tanks are going to uh, have a lot more water flow, even in an SPS coral tank. If you're trying to mimic like a, a, a rocky intertidal sort of biotope, we're talking about like surge devices, uh, dump buckets, and some you know really big pumps because you want to you know, you, re- you really want to see that water just churning. You want to see bubbles rolling around. Generally, it's uh, really really strong water flow, which means bigger pumps, which means a lot of heat input from the pump. So the one thing they usually recommend is an external sort of pump so that it doesn't dump all that heat into the water you have to even think okay this is like alien world for me so put yourself in my spot i'm just thinking they're like hmm i'm gonna set up a tank number one i have to make it out of wood or pay a crap ton for double paint insulate uh insulated glass or even just do thick acrylic all right that's one then i have to sit there and what am i gonna do for filtration i'm gonna have to go to the hardware store and if i do a canister filter or even a sump i'm gonna have to insulate the tubing that goes down from the tank down to the sump with like some hardware store, you know, um, what copper line insulation, the rolls that go over it. Just get a noodle. Just, yeah. Go to Walmart, get yourself a, one of those foam noodles. There you go. Show you. Save you some money. Send me the money. All the, all the PVC. It's, you have to use the thicker PVC and the. And then on top yes. of it, you, you have to ask your, your pump manufacturer, hey, what's the heat rating on your pump? Never heard of that one. Didn't even think that. Like, what, what else could potentially create heat in the tank? I'm trying to think. A, a filter. Pumps. Of course, there's no heater. Pumps. Um, is there a special type of gravel that you have to use in the, the bottom? I'm assuming that's just with the species type. There's nothing that you would worry about being cold or that would you know, do insulation in the bottom. Cause again, you're using double pane glass or acrylic. It's just uh, mm-hmm. crazy. You're essentially building a visible fridge in your home. <laughs> Some people use uh, like the big, big ass beer coolers as sumps. Just, uh, the, just the whole cooler. Just like get a little mini deep freeze and there's your sump. Fill a bulkhead in it and there you go. Put a six you pack know, of beer in the bottom. Yeah. Well, you're good to go. Do you have uh, experience doing that? Just like, Going and get yourself one of those uh, coolers, and does that work well? <laughs> I haven't done that myself. I've seen it done, and yeah, they it, it totally makes sense. I mean, yeah, great have, idea. Yeah. Actually, the guys at Coldwater Marine Aquatics, I believe that started that. So, have you made yourself a homemade aquarium chiller? No, no. That's, so you go back in the really old threads uh, for people doing cold water stuff, they've tried everything from like, you know, beer fridges with coils and coils and coils of garden hose. And yes. That's what like I've that. done. <laughs> Cause Rob's yeah, a cheap ass. Not a, just a waste of your time. I mean, when you what? have, when you got to, you got to drop the temperature down like 10, 15, maybe even 20 degrees, depending on the ambient. I mean, all right. So just, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ch- try to challenge that one. Cause I've never had to get down to like as, as low as 55 consistently. It's always just to make sure the cold water species maintain health. So I've never really sat there and gone, Hmm, I need a nice low frosty temperature. Like I drink out of a Culligan machine, but 
you can still get those mini fridges are literal mini freezers. You might use a freezer probably. Yeah. I figure that would, would probably work better with the coiled, uh, coiled garden hose. We actually did a, an episode. On or you could buy a chiller. Some of our uh, like tips, tricks, and hacks. And I, I described how you can go on like Craigslist, spend 175 bucks on an old mini fridge, college mini fridge they're throwing out, and you know, where to cut a hole, where to put the 100-foot uh, uh, garden hose. But yeah, for this, the only hope you would have would be a freezer. And even then, like I don't know. How do you balance that? Because you have to be so precise. There's not a lot of forgiveness. Yeah, and you can't. You, it's hard to control them, and, so, and they don't really do anything to begin with. On most of these species, what is the range that you you have forgiveness with? If your optimal is fifty five, they can go down to freezing and up to sixty five. Is that the forgiveness uh, on most species? Mm, depends on the species. Um, some are adapted to uh, tidal pools, so they may even occur fairly nor far north or far south. But because they you know, are sometimes trapped in these pools and sit in the sunlight for hours, they have evolved the ability to withstand slight thermal stress. But for the most part, these guys, you don't really want to go. When we were talking cold water animals, uh, we're talking stuff that will really start to stress at like 60 degrees. Really? So is that 55 is optimal, 5 degrees, and they're stressing out. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Depending on the species, but yeah. Um, if we're if we're going to try to you know rule a thumb, sure. In that case, my uh, beer cooler idea is out. Is not that, Fifty-five is not that cold either. If you start looking at, especially like if you go very you know very far under the surface, and and we're not just talking about like you know shore, the intertidal zone, you know the lower fifties, upper forties, even like Oregon, uh, uh, Washington, where a lot of this stuff is collected. But again, it depends, you know. If it's cold water, it means you need a chiller, you know, and that would be any kind of tank that would, you know, say, say it's uh, you're replicating a biotope from the Mediterranean, which some people might would maybe say is subtropical. But the thing is, yeah, it's it's not quite as cool, but it's fairly stable. It doesn't shoot up to like, you know, uh, you know 75 degrees or anything like that. So. So you had a question. If you, if you, if you, yeah. I apologize. You had a question, Jimmy. What are the top four or five things that people keep in these cold water aquariums? I know, um, like you said, sea cu- cucumbers earlier. Um, I was sure. down in, in Florida at Seagrass Farms playing with their sea cucumbers, which are a lot of fun to squirt people with and whatnot. But, <laughs> Wait, but, didn't you just like no. grab them like the uh, Wild Boys episode where they put them in their pants and jack no. them? No. Okay. Don't look that up on on internet kids, by the way. Yeah. No, the uh when we when we we're down at Seagrass Farms and stuff, they're showing us some different things and they were pulling out sea cucumbers and and everybody was shooting each other with with water and stuff, which was a lot of fun. But uh Oh man. What are the top what what are the top four or five items that people want to keep in their tank? The things they kind of start their tanks for, at least, you know, I'm I'm mostly familiar with like the Pacific Northwest crowd. So they want to go for things that they can collect or intertidal things that are pretty. So like giant green sea anemones, if you're familiar with them, they're pretty much like they sound, a humongous green sea anemone. They're one of the few zooxanthellate cnidarians that you would keep in a tank like that. So they do need the bright light. Those people may end up also getting elegant sea anemones, which occur in the same area, but they're more, they look like uh, condylactus almost, like little tiny condylactus. They're kind of whitish with purple tips. 
And then maybe another thing would be Catalina gobies, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Um, people just like those as they're colorful and cute, small, hardy, easy to keep. That's usually where people will, uh, well, they'll, they'll, they'll try their hand at like cold water with a nano sort of system and throw like that kind of goby in it. And maybe the other thing's a fluffy sculpin. I assume zebra gobies as well. Say what? Zebra gobies would work as well. Yeah, I, I found that they're a little bit less hardy than Catalina's, but so, yeah, basically the same thing. They're pretty cool. You can breed them really easily. Before we go too much further into species, we have some questions from the audience. So one of them, is there any specific types of cooling systems for marine cold water aquariums that you recommend? Um, you know, maybe some name brands that uh, you've tried in the past, because this sounds like it's extremely specific. They're not, they're not just going to be able to... to simply do one search and click on the first chiller. They got to do some homework to make sure it's going to be a, a real chiller. <laughs> and chillers aren't cheap. Right. Yeah. Especially, like I said, the ones that are actually made for uh, uh, cold water applications. So those are, those are going to be brands that are, um, you know, they, they sell probably more to like public aquariums than they do to like hobbyists. But, and since I've been in this uh, more, you know, deeply a lot of those companies are even gone there was one called pacific coast something <laughs> i forget the the name um but if maybe if you look at pacific coast chillers that might get you there um i've used like current and brands like that are kind of off the shelf at your lfs as long as they're oversized they'll work i'm trying to think who else uh god it's been so long so they make little thermoelectric ones for the people that uh want to do like the nano thing the first tank that's about the only time you do anything other than your regular uh basically the, they're they're hooked up they're, they work the same way as like a refrigerator chiller uh but uh you get these little thermoelectric ones yeah they're called ecosystems i'll have to try and send you a link for some of the brand names i they actually that's a good one to look at because he manufactures the tank and everything like a whole system so it's really thick acrylic and it's made with uh you know, cold water applications in mind. So what are some of the average price of some of these chillers that we're speaking of? Price oh, of, price um, of a used well, car. Depends on, you know, size, and they're all rated by horsepower. You know, a quarter horsepower can actually do quite a bit. You know, if you have, like, a small tank, then you're you're talking, like, four or $500 maybe for a good one. So that's the biggest investment, really, after the, you know, thicker acrylic. You definitely can't skimp on the chiller. But that's going to be hundreds of dollars. Otherwise, for something that say like a say fifty five to seventy five gallon tank is going to be what a thousand dollars? Depending on how it's plumbed and everything like that, you might even you might be able to get away with like a quarter horsepower on that. And I haven't priced chillers lately, but you know, a few hundred bucks at least. Probably thinking more like half a grand for a tank that size. There you go. I got a couple more questions here from the audience. I'd like to ask if he's had any experience using electron, uh, excuse me, electrolysis to aid mineral acceleration in stony corals. Oh, <laughs> essentially electrocute them to keep them, uh, electrocute them into growing. No, that sounds terrible. Yet. That's uh, that's what Jimmy does uh, to get me started in the podcast. He just grabs the nipple clamps and we start the show. <laughs> and you're the reason we need to get HR. In a meeting with you tomorrow. If you say so. 
Uh, last one is, you know, how quickly will water evaporate if I try to chill my aquarium by aiming my fan at it? Well, I, that depends on the on the cooling, on the temperature of the water, and the velocity of the air, and um, the the uh, the humidity in the room. But uh, I mean, if it evaporates, just you know, add, you know, just top it off. That's it, it's it's a lot easier to just top off a tank than to uh, <laughs> pulling apart a tank, putting you know, upgrading your chiller or whatever. But it's, uh, there's no, I don't know if there's a real hard fool. I don't, I don't know if like an algorithm for that. You know, you're you're not gonna you're not gonna see the evaporation overall that you would in a tropical tank. People mention that a lot. I think, you just don't have to top it off. I think you hit the nail on the head. It just helps encourage more water changes faster. That and you're humidifying your house, which is not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're monitoring humidity. I mean, we're in Minnesota, so in the summer, it's uh, humid as hell, but uh, you lose a lot of water in the winter. It's so dry. No matter who you are, you're bound to get a nasty nosebleed. So having aquariums in your house and a fan on it, not necessarily the worst thing where we're at. Yeah, but, uh, you know, again, you know, you're not going to see the evap that you would in a cold water tank than you would in a uh, tropical tank. And that's just, that's like, everybody mentions that. So that's just kind of a, one of the things to expect. In fact, if you're, uh, and you probably wouldn't be, there are very few things that need a lot of calcium, but if you're, if you're using your top off water to dose things, you might find that, you know, <laughs> you have to do more water changes just to be able to introduce that, those uh, supplements, because you're not topping off like you were used to with a previous tropical system. So Jimmy, you had a question was it i don't remember i i, I, I talked about nipple clamps and it's all over yeah i just, just went right over my head so uh about 10 years ago i was uh granted the opportunity to tour behind the scenes at SeaWorld. uh our friends at secrets our friends at secrets farms uh lined it up they sell uh quite a few things to uh SeaWorld, and so we were able to do a behind the scenes and what just simply amazed me is the size of chillers that they have I mean, the size, the size of cars in the back. I mean, we got to see all the equipment. We got to go back and hold baby penguins. We got to uh, go behind the scenes. Uh, we saw the killer uh, Shamu Is whale. Is that why security let us take pictures in front of that Shamu statue like he was giving us fellatio? No. <laughs> God. You... I can post that on our Facebook page. Yeah, you go ahead and do that. <laughs> The uh, what what truly amazed me is the amount of equipment that behind the scenes for for the size of the tanks that they have, I want to say that they had twice the amount of equipment in the back area just to, to try to keep all these filtered and uh, cleared up. Yeah. But what was interesting is they told us that they have they do run some um, of the pipe for for the uh, plumbing underneath the cold weather uh, penguin exhibit because the cement is so cold. And once that cement is cold, then they run the pipes through it, and it, and it abstracts uh, some of the cold to, to help chill. So if my thought is if you had a penguin display also, <laughs> you could really save a lot of money on this whole thing. Right. You need to find a way to incorporate your penguin display so you that's, have your marine life working well, right? But, yeah, it's just tr truly amazing the amount of equipment. And so people are going, oh, their tanks aren't that big, but people don't realize the amount of equipment that you need to keep those tanks chilled, clear, and especially like in, in – you know, outdoors in Florida, I mean, trying to keep some of these exhibits cold, 
for the people, you know, to watch these uh, inverts and, and the different fish and stuff. It's just a totally incredible and totally blows my mind. Can, can I have a tangent just for a moment? As long as you don't talk about nipple clamps. No nipple clamps. So I went to, with you to uh, SeaWorld and uh, I, I was horrified. We went through and SeaWorld was great. We got to see the, you know, uh, the whales before the orca whales before they probably got canned. I don't even know if they're showing them anymore. But I know they were limiting stuff when we were there. Everything was just like peeking ahead from uh, the Blackfish movie. And we went to the penguin exhibit. <laughs> and it was really cool. You get in this like little roller coaster thing. There's TVs everywhere. It's like one giant rolling like projector screen everywhere. And uh, it's like a Disney sing-along. And then they open the doors at the end to show the real live penguins. And at that moment, we're like, oh, penguins. And you look. And this wall of like penguin crap smell. It was delicious, face, wasn't it? Like a truck. Uh, it was like freezing, chilled poop smell. I've I have no idea how they do that, but it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> yeah, it was almost like it was real. I never want to see a penguin again. <laughs> yeah, penguins aren't the cleanest animals, but it's, it's totally cool. I mean, where else are you going to see a, a penguin? You know, people go on tangents about about uh, Sea World and different places, but you know what? Um, Imagine your life, imagine your, your children, your grandchildren in 20 years and there's no more SeaWorld, there's no Bartman Bailey Circus, and there's going to be no more zoos. And, and the only place your kids are going to see what an animal looks like is on TV until they ban that too. So, I mean, I just, uh, I love, I love zoos. I, lo- I love SeaWorld. But I mean, so many people are, are so dead set against this stuff. And uh, I had, we, were, we went down to Bartman Bailey Circus, Rob's. We saw the one of the we saw the last show in Tampa, Florida, Barnum Bailey Ring Brothers Circus. There was thirty thousand people there in the arena, and everybody that was there was saying, "You know, I'm coming because you know I, I know this is going to be the last time you're through." But but uh, talking to one of the Ringling Brothers um, people that worked there, I said, "What brought you guys down to this point?" He says, "The elephants. We don't have elephants anymore. People quit coming. Period." And you know, I, I mean, I realize the elephants need to be out in the wild where they belong. But uh, when you've got 20, you know, 20,000 kids, 30,000 people at these places, these were these kids see these items and go, you know what? I want to be a biologist. I want to give back. I want to, you know, go and be, uh, what do you want to call it? Like a professor of, of uh, animalology. Is that the correct term? I, I just love that zoology. 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 You know, I mean, there's like a power segue here going from how penguins smell like poop to we need to keep the elephants. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny. Every, keep elephants. What I'm just saying is that without zoos, without aquariums, people are going to lose their interest and, and people aren't going to be keeping aquariums in 50 years if you close up the public aquariums. Well, That's I'm, what I'm getting at. 100%. That's why I like uh, Project uh, Piaba. I think I said that correctly. I get made fun of a lot for that. You know, that just shows that if we can see these fish that we can't even have because of sighty species, we see them in aquariums, there's more interest in them, love, and then people actually donate dollars because, wow, that was really cool fish. I don't want that to disappear. And they had an interaction. They had a love, and it follows the dollars for conservation. Without that, I mean, there's nothing there. But that, that was a hell of a tangent. I'm just saying. Hell of a tangent. Just saying. I like my elephants, too. So, I, I think Jimmy started this podcast like, oh, cold water aquariums, and he was expecting someone from, like, SeaWorld to come on, like, yeah, we got a lot of chillers. Hey, by the way, are whales included? 
<laughs> you know, it was probably the best beluga whale question I've ever had. And you guys just totally made fun of me. I can't wait till we get like Gary Lang on here and be like, um, are crocodiles down there? You know, I, I'm still waiting for you to get Betty White on, like you keep promising. So, hey, and she's not getting any younger, by the way. Hey, it's COVID season. We have to protect our treasures. <laughs> Sorry about that tangent, buddy. <laughs> so, getting back into it, we have more uh, more questions. We have uh, recommendations of nano cold water species. So, if someone's just starting a wanting to get in this cold water marine idea they they found the chiller they found some or either made a custom made aquarium what species invertebrate and fish would you recommend putting in some sort of nano tank for a cold water species just get started for the first tank besides a beluga whale <laughs> just thing to get a hold of too for someone's first tank and just starting to make connections would be like a catalina goby maybe a zebra goby or something like that you can get those over live aquaria or whatever but they're hardy. They live in little tanks like that, and they're forgiving about water conditions and even temperature. But, you know, some of the other gobies, if you're collecting um, yourself, uh, you can find these little guys called gunnels, almost like little sort of eel sort of looking things. You'd have to look them up. But they're pretty cool. They come in different, I hate to say it, come in different colors. Uh, but uh, they... Um, they're pretty hardy too, as long as you have a lid, they'll, you know, they can crawl out of the tank. For invertebrates like a um, uh, elegant uh, anemones, that's something else that people can easily collect on the coast where they live. Pretty, pretty hardy there too. I've, I've literally just seen them like growing in ditches and stuff where there's runoff from the side of the beach or whatever. Um, really tough, as long as there's light. Now, are there any species that you recommend for helping cycle the uh, the tank? Because you said you could have it uh, warmer to try to cycle the tank. I, I'm always like, put a fish or two, try to get it going for a hardy species. Like, I, I've, I've heard people yeah. using sailfin mollies a lot, and I know that they have yeah. a quite a, a wide range. Could they be in a, like these cold water marine habitats even after the cycle? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was totally what I was going to recommend, too. Easy to get a hold of, cheap, um, uh, captive bred. So if you kill it, nobody can, well, uh, no big ecological concern there anyway, for those that would have that. Um, but yeah, they, they'll work, uh, you know, you can eat them up while during the cycle. And as long as you bring it down slowly enough, one thing you might do there too, is if, you know, if you buy them from a pet store, they're almost certainly in fresh water. So while you're manipulating the water temperature, you might want to you know, kind of gradually up the salinity as well. And that, bring that up as you bring the temperature down after the cycle. Yeah, that'd be a, that'd be a good one. Actually, hard to think. There's not too many. Um, I guess like some places are bait fish. Believe it or not, I think more on the East Coast you can use these things. Uh, they're called a, a chummy chummy chub something. I don't know. There's some kind of uh, fundulus, uh, like a pup fish or something. Again, I'm drawing a blank, but uh, that's something that might be cheap and hardy that you can use for cycling. Um, I really can't think of an invertebrate. I wouldn't add anything like that until after it was lively cycle so what about any like blennies blennies yeah um so there's like the kamahari blenny you can actually get those um sometimes at Edco now believe it or not there was a time when those were considered really rare they're subtropical but uh and i and i found from personal experience they don't like really really cold water but 
if you're running something like in the upper 50s, lower 60s, they'll tolerate that. They're pretty cool looking. Black with like an icy blue stripe on the side. Myacanthus genus, they're a fang blenny, so they swim out in the open. So they're not just going to lay on the bottom like a normal boring blenny. Um, there's some other ones. There are a lot of, you know, they're just not in the, they're not uh, widely available in the trade. So you kind of have to, like, you know, you kind of have to look for this stuff. There's a thing they're called Matsuna. It's like the only collector I know of right now that deals in any way with with the pub, with uh, like private aquarists that they're based out of California. And you can find them pretty easily on Coldwater Marine Aquarium Keepers, which is the uh, Facebook page that I mentioned earlier, uh, started and still ran by the guys who once operated Coldwater Marine Aquatics. They collected and sold livestock to the hobbyists up till about a few years ago, I think. Yeah, it's not, it, stuff isn't easy to get, but um, it's one of those things where you just kind of got to, you got to look for it when it comes in. I've, I've actually gotten stuff that came in by accident. Um, things just get collected and traded, <laughs> you know, and it, people will be like, you know, you'll work in, in the fish store or whatever. And you'll be, well, what the hell is that? And you look it up online and it's favorite temperature is, you know, 50 something. That happens every once in a while. And you keep your eye out for that, you know, you might be able, that or you may be able to actually order stuff. You know, there are always these oddities at the back of the fish list that people in the LFSs are never going to order unless you ask for them. That's a good place to start, honestly. But, um, talking to people is the best way, really. And then getting in on, like, group buys is a big thing when people are importing things either from, uh, uh, like, the British Isles or um, Australia, where, you know, the shipping is really prohibitive there. That's the main reason. Um, but there are people actively collecting that stuff down there. It's just to get it up here is really expensive and kind of a pain in the butt. So that's why people get in on these, uh, you know, they pool their resources and get all this stuff at once and then kind of distribute it once it gets here. It kind of sounds like an underground movement of hobbyists that are uh, happy to spend $1,000 on a tank so they can get a free fish out of a mud puddle. <laughs> <laughs> that that's on right you get you get both ends you get the people that um are you know they, they, at least they start it thinking that they're gonna get into salt water on the cheap um either because they think they're going to collect their own things which there are two reasons you can't do one it's it's not really very it's not legal uh you have to buy all these permits and then you're limited as to what you can take and if you're not well organized um you can't you know you have to not a lot of species are just sitting there on the beach for you to pick up and walk away with. You know, it's, it takes a little bit of expertise and research to know how to find and get these animals. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, when I had my company, I lived just, you know, a couple hours inland, but that was, that actually made it kind of tough, even being that close to the coast, particularly in the summer, because you collect this stuff and then you got to rush home because, as it gets warm in those little containers, uh, it's already dying from the moment you've, uh, you know, you bagged it. So anyway, yeah, it's just, it's, it takes a little bit of research and diligence to get a hold of stuff. Again, I, I stress, that's why I think a lot of people like this. They want to have things no one else has had. Um, those are more the other, you know, you get the cheap, <laughs> cheaper people. And then at the other end, you get the people that are, uh, they're all, they've already tried 
in the reef aquarium hobby, they're frankly bored with it and uh, just stumble upon this stuff. Um, and you know, just, they, they fixate on like, they want a certain kind of cold water tank, even animals all from one area or whatever. And yeah, you can invest a lot of money in it if you really want to. So before we let you leave, we have to ask the question that uh, fans demand. Anytime we talk about saltwater aquariums, we always talk about, uh, hitchhikers on a lot of the stuff, uh, people get because, you know, live rock used to come directly from the sea and they'd get, Horrible monsters, that, <laughs> monsters that come up. Nessie, the Loch Ness monster, right? That and come big, up in the, Bigfoot in the live rock. So when you're collecting, there are certain specimens, either vertebrates or what, whatever you're trying to collect out in the wild. What cold water hitchhikers do you have to worry about, or are common to see? It's a lot of weird stuff, actually. There are these things called skeleton shrimp. They're little hitchhikers that can. Uh, I don't think they're all that harmful, but you know, they're just weird to find. It's uh, mainly when you collect like seaweeds and things like that, you'll get all kinds of different isopods and whatever. And because um, (laughs) this is sort of a, there's not as much knowledge and information out there about cold water stuff. So half the time you don't even know what it is and you don't know if it's good or bad. Right. You know, you'll find like, you get like, believe it or not, I've got like sea spiders, Pycnopodia, these weird things that they're like, parasites on sea anemones and stuff they, they actually are spiders and um yeah they just come out of nowhere and you're like what the hell is that you know and you spend a lot of time either on a forum or just doing your own research trying to figure out what it is i've had i've had uh, really cool sea slugs come in as hitchhikers and luckily i had the very thing they eat come in as a hitchhiker also so they lasted as long as that hydroid or whatever it is they're specialized on feeding on you know comes <laughs> comes with them in the tank that's that's the cool thing about this and especially when you're collecting your own stuff including your own rock and sand is you know it's going to come loaded with all kinds of weird critters and then uh as they pop up you know you're spending all your time uh either doing your own research or um picking people's brains on a facebook page or or whatever yeah, a couple of years ago, one of my friends uh, took his family across country. He rented a motorhome, and you know they wanted to go through Yellowstone, but they also wanted to go out on the on the coast. And they were out by Oregon, um, and they went and found the tidal pools and whatnot. And one of the most interesting things he said, you know, they, they all grabbed uh, just ice cream pails. They brought them along because they just wanted to go out and just see what they could kind of collect. And and they weren't going to bring them home. They just wanted to see what they could find and stuff. And and they were collecting the different seaweeds. And they would just put the seaweed in the pail and just just kind of squish it and just see oh, what, would, right. what would come out. And they said there was just all kinds of, of interesting looking uh, little crabs and and uh, slugs and different weird things that they've never seen before. And he said that was probably the most interesting afternoon we spent, you know, out on the on the coast is because his kids have a, a, a sense uh, they just love aquariums also and stuff. And they uh, just had so much fun out there. And then they went and found a nice seafood restaurant um, down there and. Uh, they took them out and they caught their own lobsters for lunch with uh, cages or whatnot and um, said it was one of the best afternoons they had on their two-week trip. But he said it was just incredible the amount of stuff that would come out of the seaweed. He goes, you look at the seaweed, there's nothing there. But when he swished it in the mm-hmm. pail, it was just full. The pail was full after they pulled the seaweed out of just different interesting things. Oregon Coast in particular, you know, it's like it's dominated by mussels in a lot of areas. Some of the tide pools by like just 
you know, those two main species of uh, sea anemone live in the upper shore, the, the, the giant green and the elegant. Um, it looks like there isn't a lot of diversity until you start digging in. And then, yeah, again, yeah, it's like you take, imagine taking that seaweed home and having it sit in, you know, stew in your tank for a while and all the weird things that pop out of it. It's, that's really the fun thing about it. You know, when you've collected it yourself, that's one of the big attractions, I think, to people that do this here. You know, there's, there's a whole group in the UK that, you know, an equivalent and yeah, half of it is just dominated by what you find after the fact that came out of the of sand or you, you ask what kind of gravel, you know, some people will use like um, the crushed coral, things like that. I've seen that in some cold water tanks. It doesn't hurt, but um, this crowd really likes to completely recreate an area they as they found it. So they will actually collect all of the sand or gravel or hash or whatever is, you know, type of substrate is there. They'll take that type of rock if, if the law allows and uh, bring all that back with them and kind of re <laughs> reassemble it, right, um, as best they can the way they found it. Um, so it's, it's just different than like having this hodgepodge of things that you just, you know, got from different stores or whatever. It's kind of a different experience. And it's more like the one that the original marine aquarists had because there was a time where everyone had to collect their own stuff, had to grow their own live foods even. So uh, the again, it's like the DIY aspect and, the, and also do your own research. Um, part of this, I think is, you know, keeps a lot of these people, uh, a lot of people in this niche. I think a lot of this goes back to, I mean, you know, you said earlier that that uh, you grew up in North Dakota. I also grew up in North Dakota. Not a lot of things to do there, honestly. But I mean, if you could find yourself down to the local creek, you could entertain yourself all afternoon. Um, we used to go down and uh, just take a stick, and you'd see a crawfish. And you, oh, yeah. you you would just hang off hang off the bank for hours looking for crawfish, and you would take and uh, take the stick and poke at them until they would get mad at you, and they would grab a hold of the stick, and then if you pulled the stick out fast enough, you could get them on on shore and, and take them home. And we, we would spend hours down there seeing what different minnows and, and different things you could see through there. Every once in a while, you'd see a, a snake um, go in the water and, and go after minnows and stuff. And uh, I mean, that was our form of entertainment as we were younger. And I think that takes a lot of people back starting out your own cold water tanks. I mean, a lot of people that probably grew up in that area just want to recreate that at home like so many of us want to want to do. I totally agree. Um, there's like that, I think a lot of the people that could order things that are from elsewhere just don't want to put it in there because yeah, that's their, their intention is to recreate a particular environment. Uh, it's hard to order a bunch of stuff, especially the, the rock and sand from a particular area. So they just focus on the one where they're at and, uh, make it a day, you know, out and, you know, like their waiters and, you know, their, their, their dip nets and, and uh, a case of beer or whatever, you know, and just, you know, make a day of it. It's been, you know, the Oregon coast, the uh, Washington coast, they're beautiful places. So it's just, it's just adds a whole different element, you know, where you, you get out there and you're, you're actually seeing the environment from which these animals came. So you have a way of kind of surveying how things look. Some people will actually, you know, take water tests even. Um, so they know, um, what to recreate uh, in their systems when they get back. They take a lot of notes. 
definitely something more like it's a, it's a lot more um a lot more proactive well before we go into the last thing is there anything that you feel that we've missed uh as far as trying to dive into the world of Coldwater Aquarium again we only get you for about an hour so I know there's only so much we can do but is there any important topics you think we need to cover yet um you know just in terms of people so getting into the audience's head, I think they would still be wondering what the real difference is between this stuff and tropical stuff, right? <laughs> it's like, why even do this? It's like, yeah, what's the difference? I don't need as much light, but I need a chiller. It's not, that, that isn't necessarily going to um, really rouse anyone's curiosity or anything. So I would say this, like, if you look at the animals themselves, you'll find that they're completely different colors. Uh, the cold water animals are predominantly like orangish, reddish, you know, colors, whereas like the corals we're most familiar with, um, tend to be like purples and pinks and so forth. But, um, rock is different instead of having like this live rock that's made from, uh, you know, mostly from, you know, coral skeleton aggregate and so forth. You know, it's like, uh, there's a lot more variation depending on where you collect it from. So it might be like this basaltic sort of cool, jaggedy black, you know, stuff or granite or whatever. But in any case, you, you know, you're always trying to recreate it. Um, but anyway, the, it's, it, you have like, almost looks like a, I don't know. I think the animals look, uh, are primitive or something more like robust because of the types of environments they live in. A little more prehistoric. Yeah, definitely. Which is interesting because they're more highly evolved. Most of the cold water species invaded those areas from tropical areas. So the they're actually, from evolutionary history, they're actually uh, younger species. But yeah, they're, they're different looking. Um, they behave differently. They really like to eat. You know, they're, they're in a lot of ways, they're more like a freshwater sort of tank that you know it's people really like to dump food and watch things fight over it and stuff like that it's it's a more more these these animals are more like pets i would say yeah you know it's it's a whole different experience for people that have already had uh uh reef tanks it might even is might even be a somewhat familiar experience to people that have had freshwater tanks because aside with the obvious difference of the salt the uh systems just the way they run and the, way the animal behavior probably more similar i think to like a like freshwater fish they're more robust they're fish for men get into cold water marine <laughs> yeah that's the, that's the macho side of the marine aquarium keeping right there i can just see your your pr team don't be a bitch get a chiller <laughs> <laughs> i love it well again uh, you know there's, there's one other thing i would say and um I'm not going to let you guys go now that we start talking about this. I'm in nerd mode, but hey, um, that's where we need to get you. <laughs> um, you know, there's the aspect, and there are definitely people that like the technology and everything in the reef side. But once you get in the cold water, it's that's why it was attractive to me, I think, is because it's more like you're looking into the, eco the ecology interaction between the animals, uh, the you know, the 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 effects of all the foods you put in the water and all that, it's more of like an ecosystem. And particularly because you build it yourself, um, often from animals you collected from the wild and even the aquascaping materials. Um, it's just, it's, uh, it's more for like uh, someone who's more, you know, more interested in the biology than the uh, techno, you know, the technology. 
So you can definitely go there if you want with all the chilling equipment and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it's like, I, I've already, you know, I, I was at a total loss, like getting names for brands and stuff. And I come on here as like an expert, but I've never really cared about all that stuff. To me, it was more about, um, finding these animals and, and putting them together and displaying them in a way that, you know, really replicated this really cool environment. Well, I think that sends testament that chillers last a while. They're not like the uh, throwaway equipment. You're spending uh, quite a bit of money on it. And clearly if you haven't needed to shop a bunch of times for chillers, that's a statement right there that uh, it's an investment <laughs> worth doing. They do need occasional repairs and stuff like that, but I mean, it's not a cheap, it isn't a cheap piece of equipment. That's, that's the one thing where you really can't, can't skimp on the money or on the research. You really have to know what you're going to need before people, people make the mistake of getting too big of a tank. And then it's so hard to follow up with everything else they need after the tank. If you know what I mean? They want, it's like, they insist on having like, say whatever, a 65 gallon tank. And they think that that will work with their budget. But then all of a sudden they're skimping on the size of the chiller, the size of the biofilter and all these other things. So uh, with cold water, one thing I would just suggest is to start really small, particularly because you're already going to be spending more on the tank. You know, even if it's a small tank, they often don't make really, unless it's for cold water, they don't make really small tanks that have the extra thick acrylic. But in that case where you have that much more surface area to volume, it's really important to have uh, you know, really thick acrylic. So there's just a bunch of considerations to make beforehand, particularly if you're like me and you're not into like the technology and physics and all that stuff. The best place to go is to just uh, hit a forum or the uh, Facebook page I mentioned, talk to some of those people and get some ideas before you start throwing money down. And uh, tell them, uh, you know, Ken Wing sent you. That way you get the <laughs> VIP treatment when you go to that Facebook page. Absolutely. So before we leave, you also, you mentioned before your store. The best way I can describe it is, can you tell us more about your, you know, tasty version of uh, vitamin water? I suffer pretty badly from attention deficit disorder and it uh, seeps into my professional life. So I, I haven't done anything with like cold water really in a long time, to be honest. I bounced around all kinds of different things and I... But two years ago, I settled on the microbiological aspect of aquarium keeping. And at that time, I was working with a company called Algae Barn and um, always trying to get them to uh, carry this particular type of bacteria. It, because it, it just like worked really well with what they were trying to do and um, what their clients were trying to do in terms of water quality management, the approach. And, um, that never happened. And after I left them, I kept that idea in my head and just jumped in and started a company out of it. And, uh, this time it's actually like growing into a regular thing. It's like kind of my day job at this point. Um, but anyway, what it is, is it's a, it's purple non-sulfur bacteria. Um, not a lot of people have heard of it yet, but I know they will partly because it's already really in important in aquaculture. So it's used not a lot on fish farms to remediate water quality. It's refreshing salt water. Uh, it's an extremely ancient photosynthetic bacteria. It's pretty much ubiquitous in nature, but um, it gets eliminated from a lot of um, artificial systems, aquariums, 
uh, uh, just based on competition with other bacteria or, you know, inherent stresses from us cleaning our tanks, things like that. But uh, it's naturally occurring. What they do is they cycle nitrogen, they cycle phosphate, and they uh, cycle sulfur. And um, in an aquarium, what you would expect them to do, actually what they are being used for in fish farms is to remove nitrate and ammonia and uh, phosphate. And uh, they also consume organics as a carbon source. So anyway, yeah, they reduce your need for like uh, uh, activated carbon, for example, reduce the frequency with which you have to uh, do water changes. And they're also probiotic. So a lot of people add them to um, foods for different things. They practically say, I know they're good for uh, shrimp, basically saved like it's like a food shrimp, but uh, basically saved that industry because of a, a vibriotic bacteria that was uh, causing a really bad disease. So same thing with corals. Uh, they live like uh, symbiotically with corals because they also fix, I go way off on this. So they fix nitrogen and a lot of organisms we would add in our aquariums that fix nitrogen, meaning they can take nitrogen gas and make ammonium out of it, which they used to make uh, tissues and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's, that's the opposite of denitrification. And that's why in a coral reef environment, these corals, the uh, last 15 years of research is pointing more towards these bacteria as being really important, you know, now calling the coral holobiont, which is basically a whole bunch of organisms that they consider like a super organism. And this, bac this type of bacteria is one of them because it's uh, able to uh, basically provide nutrients to the zooxanthellae in a, a nutrient-poor environment. So that's the gist of it. There's a lot more to it than that beyond the scope of the show, I'm sure. But, um, I've so, had that company going for about a year now. I got a private message from one of the listeners. Is this safe to use at all in fresh or water or brackish aquariums? The bacteria? Yes, this uh, PNS Pro Bio yeah. that you're, uh, you're selling on your site. Yeah, so it's um, mostly found in freshwater environments. It favors freshwater environments, but it'll survive in uh, hypersaline environments even. So it's pretty, it's uh, urihaline, meaning it, it survives in any, any it, there's a salinity of any kind of aquarium we would keep basically. And um, as far as safe, yeah, there are no bad, there's no, it's non-pathogenic. So it can't hurt anything. All it does is uh, stabilizes your your nitrogen cycle, and it will consume like rub like organic rubbish dissolved in solid in a freshwater system. Um, for example, you would use this like with plants. So you have like cellulose, lignin, all these things that higher plants produce, right? And it makes all this rubbish that the ponds too. This it doesn't degrade easily because not a lot of organisms possess the enzymes make them able to break it down and digest it uh this bacteria does so anyway um yeah they use it a lot this you'll actually see this bacteria in some formulas or whatever like bacterial products that are used to they call them sludge eliminators so they'll eat up all that plant material but also because they fix nitrogen they fertilize plants so they work really well with freshwater plants and they they live in direct association with them in fact I might have to give this a try now. No, just to get rid of my sludge. 
what's the shelf life on something like that? And do you have to freeze uh, put it in the fridge? No. Uh, so this stuff can, it's, it's a really ancient bacteria. It, it evolved before there was even oxygen on earth. Um, so it, it'll live in uh, anaerobic. It prefers anaerobic environments, but it can live in the presence of oxygen. A lot of those uh, types of bacteria. Um, it's also, uh, it, it favors high temperatures. So it, it really likes the heat. Like, um, it, it, you can keep it in the bottle at, this is like the shelf life bottle or uh, like the, the shelf, like bottling it, whatever, shelving it, it can survive indefinitely at temperatures over like 112 degrees Fahrenheit. And it has like a shelf life. I, my, so I've, I've used this, I use my own product to inoculate new batches so that I know that it's always viable. Right. Um, my, my expiration is like six months on my product, but I've recently like, Oh, just to test and see how long they last. I've, I had one that was exactly a year old, was able to start a new culture with it. So stuff's like tough as nails, really. It's really, it's one of the most, it's regarded by microbiologists as being one of the most adaptable organisms on earth metabolically. Now, you said it was a big benefit towards uh, shrimp, cold water shrimp that you eat. Uh, would this be beneficial for uh, ornamental shrimp? Um, yeah, in terms of uh, being a probiotic, yes. Um, all organisms, actually. You'll, you, <laughs> I've recently seen this stuff, the same species, Rhodopseudomonas palustris, is uh, included in uh, human probiotics. I've seen papers. So I've, I've read a lot about this stuff and I've seen like, you know, on the side, weird things where like it increases like broiler chicken production, you know, uh, and when you put it in their drinking water, um, it's just a general probiotic. So it gets in the animal's gut and it increases feed conversion. So basically the animal, when it eats, is able to assimilate more of its food because this organism helps it to digest it like a lot of probiotics. But then it also protects it from uh, pathogens like Vibrio, which commonly affect shrimp. So that's there's some kind of uh, disease. I can't, can't remember the name of it, but it's it's a, you know it was in the uh, food fish industry, uh, the shrimp species. But anyway, um, this is this stuff is it produces uh, antibiotics, mainly streptomycin and canamycin, which um, Vibrio is not resistant to, so it actually works as a as a natural antibiotic inside the fish, and it's proven to survive in the gut for at least some amount of time. Um, so it, yeah, so aside from that, you know, increasing the feed conversion, what it does, uh, in addition to you know when you get more out of your food when you feed your fish, but you get less out of the fish, meaning they they crap less, they produce less waste. So, you know, when you, when you use it, when you add it that way, the fish are actually producing less waste, but then the waste they do produce in the form of uh, ammonia, uh, nitrate, phosphate, um, and uh, dissolved or organics and solid organics, this bacteria can eat it all. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, like in a saltwater tank, it would just get skimmed off. Um, it get removed, you know, in your water changes. Um, it's, it, you know, it's never going to uh, cloud your water or anything like that because it prefers anaerobic sorts of environments. 
So you, it's not harmful in any way. How often do you treat the tank with that? Then, how far does a bottle go? Yeah, so uh, most people would inoculate the tank and then see if it depends. You know what you're trying to do. So, like, say you have chronically, say you have a freshwater tank and it's a planted tank and you're having, maybe you put too many fish in it, so you're having issues with phosphates. Um, some people would inoculate it, you know, use whatever they could out of the bottle, depend how many, ever, how many doses would depend on the size of the tank, but it's just kind of like up to the aquarist to see uh, how many doses it takes until they get the results they want. But uh, say you're trying to reduce phosphates, that would just take as many doses, maybe only one, if the uh, bacteria establishes itself in the system. It would be in uh, anaerobic and you know moderately illuminated areas. So this stuff would grow basically. So I guess in, using the example of a planted tank, this bacteria would live, it kind of form like a, a biofilm slightly under the top of the substrate. It's a little bit anaerobic, where there's less oxygen, the light is still penetrating. And it would, uh, so basically it, it takes all the, uh, well, in that case, it would take like a lot of carbon uh, in, in the form of zoodates from the uh, roots of the plants, all these uh, waste products, organic waste products that the plants secrete through their roots and leaves. It'll take all that up as a carbon source. And then as a nitrogen source, you know, it'll pull out nitrate, things like that from the water. So, and in phosphate. So it would compete with algae in that way. Uh, basically, it can, so like for phosphate, this stuff is, they've used this for uh, wastewater treatment. It can remove phosphates at levels you'll never see in an aquarium. But uh, in terms of like dosing for like a small tank, you know, you just kind of, see what you're you know what the problem is some people and, and then you know when it's solved it's solved but uh i know that sounds vague but it definitely works uh this stuff really does do all the stuff we say it does um it's all uh it's all this is one of the most researched microorganisms that there is because um a lot of people have been looking into using it uh for hydrogen production so it's been studied for a pretty long time uh, pretty well so like say if you're using it in a saltwater tank for example to feed your corals and dosage would be on like a regular basis like an ongoing thing you can use it to gut load uh live foods too so anyone fresh or salt water say especially if you're raising fish um this is an excellent uh organism to gut load your or live feed with because comes with uh, carotenoids it comes with very importantly probiotics and uh, helps them digest their foods which you know it's they're one of the critical gut flora of a you know of a larval fish so um, and, lots of different uses and the best use is because it has the same bottle structure as like what are those uh, teas you know go to your local store replace the uh, label and uh, give it to Jimmy specifically <laughs> Just see, the, uh, bottle's little, the bottle's a little bit suggestive and uh, as it is, and the product is called, so the, so the bacteria one is called PNS ProBio. And I guess PNS sounds very similar <laughs> to a word that uh, certain sophomoric individuals 
to get a rise out of. Like Robbie. So don't worry. I already typed <laughs> it in chat. We we had a good one. I'm back and forth. So uh, we're 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 above that, aren't we, Jimmy? You are. <laughs> we are. Rob's is not above it. Well, again, if, if you're looking for this uh, probiotic, certainly go to hydrospace.store. And again, we'll have the link in the description of this podcast. Certainly check it out. Also, go to Amazon. Check out Ken's book on the. I had this saved. <laughs> I had it saved right in front so of me. So unprofessional. You suck. Oh, man. Suck. You suck. The Coldwater Marine Aquarium. Uh, biogeography, ecology, and husbandry. Again, the link is in the description of that as well. And again, Ken, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully uh, we're, we're going to see some uh, beer cooler sumps happening in the future here. <laughs> so, a pleasure, guys. And uh, I think Adam uh, disconnected, so uh, we wish you well, sir. You as well. Take care. Um, before we leave, just a reminder to the listeners, we're going to be having uh, Dr. Fish uh, in an episode or two. So certainly go to our Discord or send us a message directly to have your question answered live by uh, Seacrest's uh, head of fish health. And we'll, uh, we'll get those done. No, no question is too much or too little. In fact, if we can get some you know, more, more poo-related questions about penguins, that's even okay, too. Right, Jimmy. I didn't have questions about about beluga whales, just because I didn't get my question answered. Just look at you about beluga like, whales. Just look at you like I'm not an expert in whales. Next question. Next question, please. Next question. He's kind of like the president. Next question. In, in mammal zoology here. Right. Oh, Adam's not, back. I've been here the whole time. Could you guys not hear me? We couldn't. Could not hear you at all. Any last questions for Ken before we leave, Adam? Well, actually, I did have a question about saltwater mixing. You know how salt water, um, it you have to use less salt water or salt in the water when it's warmer. How do you do? You just like jack up the temperature to mix the salt, and then you decrease it, or does your salinity levels change in between the two, or no? Um, so if you're you, using yeah, if you're using like a, a density measuring sort of device, like a, a hydrometer or something, yeah. A little bit, but um, it's it's pretty. It's not. Uh, it's like a slight difference. You can you can uh, figure out how to offset that um, if you really if you really want to. But no one really ever find it has you know if you get in the if you get in the one area area that you need to be in and, and stick to it. Consistency is more important than accuracy. There, your typical like you know thirty five parts per thousand. Okay. That yeah. My question. So don't overthink it, Adam. Just not that one. <laughs> All right, Jimmy, as we leave, can you give uh, the audience your best beluga impression? No. Come on, man. I don't even know what a beluga sounds like. <laughs> right. You, that's why you got to give us an impression. Give what Basically. the audience demands. <laughs> All right. And that we, uh, we bid the adieu. See you next week. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Go fuck yourself, don't you know? <laughs> That's my boy, don't you know.